This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Today we're going to talk about epilepsy and autism. And as you know, it is a common comorbidity and the prevalence of epilepsy in the neurotypical population is 0.5%, which uh, it's considered very high. It's a common disease. But in children or even adults with ASD, it is 5 to 38%. And this frequency varies so much because ASD includes several different conditions in the, in the same um, group. And the frequency of epilepsy will vary uh, according to the comorbidities associated like cognitive impairment, um, motor deficit, and other other disorders. And that's exactly what we're going to talk today uh, to try to separate three main groups. So we use the term autism spectrum disorder to diagnose kids according to DSM-5, but we have a lot of different diseases that can have autism as part of the symptoms. And this is why epilepsy has such a, a wide range of symptoms in this population. So it's not an academic division, but to try to understand and explain a little bit better, I am proposing to separate three different groups. The first group are those that has autism as their primary diagnosis. That would be the classic autism, textbook autism. Those kids that they don't have a genetic syndrome, they don't have a brain malformation, a perinatal complications. Autism is the main symptom. The second group are those in which the main diagnosis is a known neurological condition. They also have autism, but they also have cerebral palsy, a brain malformation, some genetic, like Angelman's tuberous sclerosis. So autism is part of diagnosis, but not the main diagnosis. And the third group is a rare one, those with epileptic encephalopathy that also have autism. At, at the end, you're going to understand why we have to talk about this small group. In these groups, epilepsy is the main diagnosis, and the discharges are so frequent that the brain does not work well, and the kid may have cognitive impairment and often autism. So the first group are those that autism is the main diagnosis. In this group, remember, we had 5 to 38%. In this group, we have two peaks of epilepsy onset, usually in the very young ones before five years of age, and also in the late teens years, uh, kids that are already in the teenage years. And the prevalence of epilepsy in this group is only 12%. That means that almost 90% do not have epilepsy. If you add a genetic syndrome, the prevalence of epilepsy will be much higher. This is a graph just to try to explain what's going on. It's not based on actual numbers. But as you can see, you have autism, and we, we can add some comorbidities, and the frequency of, of epilepsy up to 60% that some, some studies suggest. In this group, we have 12%, which is very low. 
And the type of seizures that we've seen in this group, it's in a, uh, it's focal, it's multifocal, generalized. It, there's not a specific type of seizure associated with autism. And it's usually well controlled by anti-seizure medication. That's a very important information because I know epilepsy and seizures are very scary, but usually the kid will have a, a few seizures and once we start the medication, seizures will be controlled. We are talking about this specific group. But the most important issue in this group is the EEG. If you uh, get an EEG in uh, people that never had a seizure in their lives, you're going to have 1% to 4% of abnormal EEG. So you can have an abnormal EEG and never have a seizure in your life. If you do this in patients with ASD that never had a seizure, the frequency varies. Again, the studies include different types of patients. It varies from 6 to 61, but most others agree with 30%. And the type of EEG discharge can be generalized, focal, multifocal. There's no specific pattern. But the most important thing is that an abnormal EEG does not correlate that the patient will have epilepsy. And we should not treat the EEG. If the EEG is abnormal, we should not treat it if the patient does not have seizures. This is very important because once you got an abnormal test, sometimes it's tempting to do something about it. And during this talk, we're going to talk about, well, you shouldn't even have gotten the, the test because it's highly experimental. I know there are studies trying to explain, oh, we should treat the EEG, but it's not used in clinical practice. So what does an abnormal EEG mean in a patient with ASD? We don't know. And neurologists are very comfortable saying that we don't know. We don't know a lot of things, and that's okay. But what we know, we do know that people with autism, 30% will have an abnormal EEG, but only 12 will have epilepsy. So when we ask a test, it's supposed to bring us answers. And in this case, sometimes it gets in the way of the diagnosis. So many patients with an abnormal EEG will never have seizures. So EEG is not recommended as a routine baseline evaluation if the patient ever had seizures. Just to remind ourselves, like how do we diagnose epilepsy is a clinical diagnosis. You need recurrent seizures to have epilepsy. You don't need an abnormal EEG. The EEG helps to characterize the type of seizure. And the type of epilepsy is the combination of the type of seizure, the frequency of seizures, and the EEG. So if I know the type of epilepsy, I can choose the medication more specifically for that patient. And if you have uh, spasms, you, you can have ACTH and so forth. So this is very important because if you get an EEG in a patient with epilepsy, it will be really helpful. If you get an EEG and the patient never had a seizure and it comes with some discharge, you, you just don't know what you're going to do with this result. If the patient has some funny spells, some staring spells, strange movements, and you don't know if it is a seizure, sometimes we ask the family just to uh, make a home video with a cell phone and 
if you're an epileptologist, you're usually just looking at the, the video, you can tell, oh, this is a seizure for sure, or, oh no, I'm sure this is not a seizure. But if you still have some concerns, the test that you, the child should get is a video EEG, not an EEG. And that's important because the, a, a normal EEG does not rule out, does not exclude the diagnosis of epilepsy, and an, an abnormal EEG does not confirm the diagnosis of epilepsy. This is the first group, those with the classical autism, which uh, autism is the main symptom. Now we're going to talk about when you have a neurological disorder and also have autism. And this is a very, very wide group. You can have genetic syndromes like Angelman syndrome, Down syndrome, uh, patients with brain malformations, tuberous sclerosis, stroke, meningitis, perinatal complications. And just to frame the, this group a little bit better, uh, for instance, this kid, she, uh, he has uh, six years old and he has cerebral palsy. Also cognitive impairment. And he had two seizures at age one that were controlled with anti-seizure medication. The MRI shows a bilateral malformation. And at age three, he was diagnosed with autism. So the brain malformation caused the motor deficit, the cognitive impairment, the epilepsy, and also the autism symptoms. Another example, this girl, she's a 12-year-old. She has cognitive impairment. She has autism. Uh, the diagnosis of autism was at age two, and she started having seizures of age nine. Remember, the, that's the second peak. And MRI was normal, but she has a abnormal whole uh, exome sequencing. In this case, the genetic mutation caused the cognitive impairment, ASD, and epilepsy. And the last one, just to remind you that it's a very, very different group. You have a girl with eight uh, years of age, and she has TS. And she also has cognitive impairment and autism. Her seizures started at age two. They are very difficult to control. She needed epilepsy surgery to remove this large tuber. And the TS will cause the cognitive impairment, ASD, and epilepsy. So what these patients have in common? Almost nothing. And that's the problem when we're trying to establish the frequency of a comorbidity in this, in this group. Uh, epilepsy has a very wide spectrum because it includes a very different group of conditions. And seizure onset can be before or after the diagnosis of this, the autism. So the severity of epilepsy is uh, associated with the condition you have. This is very important because in this group, if you have tuberous sclerosis, we know the natural history of the epilepsy. If you have a specific mutation, if you have a brain malformation, so we just can't say, oh, in this group of patients, 33% uh, will have this, 12 will have that. We have to think according to each specific diagnosis because it's going to be very, very different. So again, if you go back to this graph, just remember, as we add comorbidities, we increase the frequency of epilepsy. And 
sometimes the family kind of complains to us. They don't mean uh, to complain, but it's a complaint that, well, my son had cerebral palsy, he has epilepsy, and now only at five, he was diagnosed with autism. And I know it's quite frequently to happen because in this group, sometimes it's it's also our fault. We are focused more on the main diagnosis. So symptoms of autism may not be really clear at this age. Symptoms sometimes are only clear after the higher demand of uh, social interaction, especially at school. And before 2013 with the DSM-4, we almost had to pick one diagnosis. We're not used to add diagnosis. So the children, uh, they, we have to say, oh, she has ADHD or autism. Now you can add, and that's very important because as we add the comorbidities, it's easier to tailor the treatment for each patient. And the last group, that's the epileptic encephalopathy. Epileptic encephalopathy are conditions in which the epileptic discharge, they are so frequent because the brain cannot work well and there is cognitive and behavior impairments that are produced by the discharge. When you're doing an EEG, every page, there's several discharges. So it's very, very, very frequent. And we usually see developmental delay, cognitive impairment, and autism. So the most common epileptic encephalopathies are those that uh, I think everybody's familiar with, but West Syndrome, Lennox-Gastaut, Drave, um, epilepsy with myoclonic tonic seizures. And the natural history is that child that has uh, he met the normal required developmental milestones for a few months, sometimes even years, has a seizure onset and developmental regression after that. And autism is frequently one of the symptoms associated in this group. Another interesting thing is that epilepsy is the main symptom. It's going to take usually a few months, sometimes years, to be clear the diagnosis of autism. Seizures are usually drug-resistant. We try to treat them, but no medication works. But if you're used to that, you're going to see that if the seizures get a little better, the symptoms get a little better. The, the child functions better. And at some times when he's having a lot of seizures, the, the kid will walk slower, talk slower, because there is this, it's really an electrical abnormality going on. But we are talking about epileptic encephalopathies, especially because of this one condition. And that will report us back to the very beginning of the talk. The epileptic encephalopathy with spike wave activation in sleep. Now, this is since February, that, that's the new name. But it includes the yes, yes, that is electrographic status epilepticus of sleep, CSWS, Landau Kleffner, that, that I think most people have heard about, and uh, atypical benign Rolandic epilepsy. We have a, a symptomatic period where the kid uh, met all the required developmental milestones, and then 
epilepsy that is usually easy to control, behavior and language regression. And the EEG is almost normal with the, when the child is awake and it's really, really bad when the child goes, goes to sleep. And the difference is that although there's some language regression, usually there is good social interaction the child wants to communicate, sometimes usually use signs, and there's no restrictive um, interest and no stereotypes. But uh, this is the EEG, almost normal. This is very abnormal during sleep. And why we're talking about this? Because this is the only disease that if you treat the EEG, the child gets better. If you start and seizure medication and you achieve some improvement in the EEG discharge, cognition and language will improve. Very, very rare. But I know that there are some pediatric neurologists that they kind of hope that, well, if we treat the EEG in a child with autism, we're going to improve the symptoms. This has been tried and we can't do that. And this is very important because those medications have side effects. So language regression can be a confusing symptom. Sometimes people think, oh, it might be a Landau-Kleffner and epileptic encephalopathy with spike-wake activation during sleep. Well, sometimes I know it's hard, but if you get an EEG during uh, awake and sleep, it's very easy to make the diagnosis, but again, don't do this if you know it's not a Landau-Kleffner syndrome because the differential diagnosis can be based on clinical signs. And that's the, the three groups that we're supposed to talk. And there is a bonus slide because I've never forget about the adults. Just, to, just one slide because the message is easy. It doesn't change much. This study is very nice. It uh, got some adults only with autism, and the frequency of epilepsy is it's very close to 12%, the same with, that we see in kids. But you have adults with autism and cognitive impairment, the frequency of epilepsy goes up. And adults only with cognitive impairment, it's a little bit less. So again, as we add comorbidities, we add the frequency of epilepsy. Just to summarize, in the group one, Autism is the main diagnosis. Seizures are not very frequent and easy to control. Group two, sometimes you have seizures and autism later, sometimes first autism and then seizures later. It's a very um, wide range of symptoms. But in the third group, we have a lot of seizures and later the child is diagnosed with autism. The take-home message is that I don't like to say like 12% uh, have epilepsy. I'd like to say like almost no one will have epilepsy. Almost 90% will not have a seizure. And if they do, epilepsy is usually well controlled with medication. Drug-resistant epilepsy will be associated with other underlying conditions. And video EG, that's the gold standard. If the, your child has some funny spells, don't get an EG. Go for the video EG. So we, we have to capture the event. And EEG should only be done if the patient has seizures. Remember that 30% will have an abnormal EEG, but only 12 will have epilepsy. Thank you.
hopefully stay here. I mean, I'm happy to take uh, questions here, and, and, and I might actually start. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Doris, but involves you as well, because I, I want to know your opinion about um, the CBD. Um, but also, I mean, lots of families uh, talk about the silent seizures that uh, they cannot uh, see, but there are, I think, in the the past years, I, I would say, um, some comments about that some of these conditions have these silent seizures that you don't see it, but it's there only if with the EEG, but because you don't have any reason to request the EEGs, you don't see it. Um, and I remember lots of families coming asking about those things. If you could comment on, on these two topics. So two parts, CBD. Uh, I'm going to talk about CBD and epilepsy. I don't know much about CBD and autism, but Everybody knows that CBD is effective for epilepsy since the 80s. Why it's not a big deal since then? Because we had a lot of different anti-seizure medications that started to be developed after the 80s, and the side effects are much, much, much lower than CBD. CBD works, yes, but they have a lot of side effects. So in my opinion, it's not the first option. You should try the more conventional and seizure medications because they are safer. But CBD should be considered in patients with drug-resistant epilepsy. And when I say CBD, it's Epidiolex. It's not the homemade or some more natural approaches. Because see, uh, the Epidiolex does not have THC. And I know that maybe THC works a little bit better but THC can trigger some psychiatric disorders. And we are talking um, about a very high risk. So I'm a little bit scared. The second, uh, sorry, the second question. Silence. Oh, the silences, subclinical seizures, very rare, but they do exist. And it's scary, but it shouldn't be. I know when you say, oh, seizures, it's a frightening thing. I know it is. It's ugly. But you're not going to lose a neuron when you have a seizure. And it's very, very, very unlikely that it will lead to something really bad. And the silent seizures are usually very short, and they last for 20 seconds, 10 seconds. There will be no brain, da brain damage because of these seizures. And nobody knows what it means. Nobody even knows if you should treat it. It's different if you're going to have a seizure that lasts more than five minutes. Five minutes is the magic number. So if you have a seizure that lasts more than five minutes, there is some evidence that it might trigger some permanent neuronal damage. Less than five minutes, which is a lot. It, most seizures last less than one minute. So we don't want to have silent seizures. We don't, have, we don't want to have subclinical seizures. But I wouldn't worry, and I know uh, some people do, that, oh, every patient with uh, autism should get a 24-hour EEG to make sure there are no silent seizures. Remember, there's a chance of 30% that e the EEG will come abnormal and you just don't know what to do with this information. But the family will be really scared. So 
I'm really not really worried about that. Oh, another important thing. I've never seen a patient have only subclinical seizures. Usually they have some clinical ones. So there's a little clue like, oh, those are the ones that maybe he's having seizures, um, staring spells. Sometimes you say, oh, they are silent. But there's a staring spell. There's some mild uh, symptoms. If you bring the kid to the EMU, like the the monitoring unit, and you see the, the seizure, sometimes we can explain to the family that's what we're looking for. And it's very helpful. Yeah, so uh, we must see different populations of patients because I have seen, I'm over here, oh, uh, seen oh. clinical, uh, subclinical seizures uh, with children with autism. Um, that is only on the EEG uh, and not clinically. But um, I would really like to comment on uh, the, the issue of the EEG and autism because that's a longstanding um point of contention between epileptologists and neurodevelopmental disability specialists. And people who deal with neurodevelopmental disabilities, um, and the literature is now, you know, more and more frequently showing this, that um, uh, people are realizing that um, seizures uh, or possibly even uh, not seizures but uh, severe EEG abnormalities do have, or may have an effect, I shouldn't say do, may have a, a negative effect uh, in terms of cognition and or behavior um, in, in autism. And so, and there are a lot of people who do, routinely do overnight EEGs as part of the diagnosis, uh, as part of the workup for children with autism because of that. And there are people who do treat them in certain circumstances, in particular when there are uh, very frequent spike wave discharges during sleep. They have not been diagnosed with epileptic encephalopathy, but <clears throat> their EEGs pretty much look like that. And, they, and it wouldn't have been picked up if the EEG hadn't been done. So um, there is room for dis- discussion about that. I agree. Yeah. What I think, if the EEG is horrible, it's different. I'm talking about sometimes you have a couple of discharges, you have to report it, it as abnormal. What I think that probably happens, it, it, we just can't measure what's going on. Because in the discharge, you have the spike and wave. The wave is the repolarization. So I'm sure that group of neurons are not working well. And the question is... Uh, a few discharges, I'll just let it go. But if it's very frequent, uh, the 85%, I don't think we need that much to consider, at least discussing with the family, the, what's the next step. All right. I think we should uh, move on. Let's uh, thank again Dr. Montenegro. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.